0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 6, Genesis chapter 6. Something was said last week in Genesis 6.13 that's going to cause us to go off on a fascinating and certainly controversial search today. Genesis 6.13 says this, God said to Noah, the end of all living beings has come before me, for because of them the earth is filled with violence. I will destroy them along with the earth. Now as we encountered this passage last week, we saw exactly what it was that caused God to destroy the earth with a flood, and surprisingly he said... It was all living creatures, all Bessar. That was the cause. The Lord blamed human and animal kind for the ruination of planet Earth. But He didn't blame Satan. The Hebrew sages say a couple of important things about evil that we don't generally find in Christian doctrine, and it is that humans have both an evil and a good inclination within us. And they say that it is because of those two opposing inclinations that we have the ability to make moral choices. But an even more difficult issue to deal with is that the Holy Scriptures claim that God created both good and evil, although not necessarily in the sense that might immediately come to mind. Could it be that the God of Israel, creator of all things seen and unseen, also created evil? I've often said that humans do not and will not ever have a sufficient vocabulary that can accurately and fully describe things of the spirit world. We are also at a loss for words that can fully communicate the mind of God. The origin of evil how did it get here? What is it? How does it operate? These are mysterious, they're baffling things. Now, in order to discuss this dicey yet crucial subject, we need to fold in several principles that on the surface don't appear to have much to do with it. Yet, without briefly exploring these basic principles as a roadmap for our journey, we just can't get there from here. So, first off, I want to talk about how our universe works because we're subject to its laws to its boundaries, to its limitations God did not create the universe put us within it and then expect us to somehow operate and have understanding as though we weren't an integral piece of that universe at least we're a piece of it for a time Our universe has definite attributes, although at times we just don't ever stop to consider them. Let me tell you of a scientific finding that is so recent that you may not have been exposed to it yet. It is that the world's body of physicists have now come to a general agreement that they've tried to avoid for decades the universe was created by design all right, as opposed to a random series of chemical reactions that had a relatively happy ending. It was not that chaos accidentally achieved order. Now that's not news for us as believers in the God of Israel nor to the billions of this planet who adhere to some religion or another whereby a a creator, a, a being that's superior to humans, is acknowledged. But when the scientific community that for the past two centuries has been so diametrically opposed to even considering that there must be some overriding intelligent cosmic force vastly superior to man When the scientific community sees order in the way the universe unfolds, the first thing one must ask is, why now? When historically agnostic physicists and mathematicians come to this conclusion, we have to ask, what's changed? We also realize that in their minds they're in no way acknowledging God. At least they don't think they are. The recent discovery, and within a whole series of discoveries, that caused this great shift in their thinking, the discovery that exceeds even Einstein's world-changing work to develop his famous theory of relativity, is the discovery of undeniable evidence that there exists at least 10 dimensions and probably 11. This discovery is a is part of a whole new realm of physics and chief among these realms is something called string theory. Now what makes this notion of many dimensions a bit difficult to comprehend is that our universe Consists of only four of those 10 or 11 dimensions, and those four dimensions are height, width, length, and time. So, scientists speak of this realm we live in, this universe, as being a space time universe. No matter how far into space our orbiting space space telescopes have peered and probed and measured these same four dimensions is all they can observe. So if that's the case then what about those additional six or seven dimensions? First, they don't exist per se in our universe. Rather they exist in some other universe, what these physicists call parallel universes. Not parallel universes in the sense that these other universes that exist in other dimensions are like holding a mirror up to an object and getting a reverse but parallel image. Rather, it's that these parallel universes exist simultaneously but apart from ours. They could even actually exist within our universe, we just have no means to observe them. Or they might exist completely outside our universe, maybe some combination of the two. Now this, I know, sounds a little far out for us, but it really shouldn't. If you read the writings of the ancient Hebrew sages you'll find that some of them described multiple dimensions. And believe it or not, these same sages, some of them who lived before the time of Christ, implied that the scriptures reveal ten dimensions plus one more, the eleventh, which is God. And now modern physicists tell us that from a mathematical standpoint and because of the otherwise inexplicable way in which energy and matter behave that there necessarily has to be more dimensions than exist within the four that we observe in our universe. They say there must be ten, probably eleven. Now to help us get a mental picture of this concept All we have to do is think of heaven as described in the Bible. Heaven obviously doesn't obey the laws of physics in our universe, does it? Perhaps the clearest indication that heaven's not even a place within our universe is that heaven exists outside of time. The word says God's heaven is eternal. Eternal means timeless. Eternity is a state of existence without time. Now stay with me, because this is both informative and comforting for for worshippers of the God of Israel. Unlike how it's often portrayed... Eternity is not an expression of a really, 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 really long time. Eternity is an expression of the existence of a realm in which the dimension of time, the fourth dimension of our universe, doesn't exist. Now the scriptures do not imply or purport that heaven is part of our universe. After all, how did God live in our universe before He created our universe? I mean, it's self-evident, I think, that He didn't live in our universe. He lives somewhere else and that somewhere else is in one or more of those other dimensions that's beyond our four dimensions. Bottom line, heaven does not reside in our four-dimensional universe. I don't think most of us ever believed that it did. My purpose for saying this is just to build a context for the next step of our discussion about the creation of evil. Now now stay alert, because believe me, this is a key ingredient that's going to explain an awful lot about our main subject of the day, which is evil. The dilemma then is how do you detect things or examine things or even comprehend things that are outside of the four dimensions of our universe? And a more immediate concern is how do we visualize, how do we draw a mental picture of things that are from outside of our four dimensions? The reality is we can't very well. Mm -hmm. And the primary reason for that is that our physical bodies, you see, are restricted to detecting things that our sensory organs can detect. Mm -hmm. Our physical eyes detect certain wavelengths. Our physical ears detect the movement of airwaves of certain frequencies. Our physical sense of touch detects heat and cool and hard and soft and so on. All of our human senses sense the physical things that make up our universe. So the only means we have to observe those additional dimensions, at least right now, is through mathematical proofs or through the discovery of strange behaviors of physical objects. It's by these means that we know that some other forces at play than the ones that can exist within our four-dimensional universe. For instance, we can notice these anomalies in the way that subatomic particles behave and how the expansion of the universe behaves, but we can also observe this extra-dimensionality by means of experiencing the Red Sea piling up. To let the Israelites pass through. Now, some of you may be saying, well, I understand that of those four dimensions, three indeed make up the physical length, width, height, or depth. But is time actually physical? How do I reach out and touch time? Do we have sensory organs that detect time? Time is an integral part of the physical nature of our universe. We first measured time on Earth by the movement of the heavenly bodies and connected this with the changing of seasons. God set up this dynamic when he readied planet life for Earth. We measure a year of time by observing our sun, the position of the stars, and the regular cycle of seasons on Earth. We measure a month by observing the phases of the moon. We measure a day and until at least a couple of hundred years ago, even hours and minutes by the movement of the sun across the sky. But what, it, what is it that we're actually measuring when we say we're measuring time? The answer lies at least partially in the method used to calculate time in the most accurate clocks known to man atomic clocks. Atomic clocks use the near perfectly steady decay of radioactive materials as their standard. The key word here is decay. Just as meters or inches are the measurement of space, in other words the three dimensions, height, width, depth, time is the measurement of the decay of the physical stuff that makes up our universe. You, me, rocks, metal, concrete, space, dust, the noble gases, everything. Time is how we describe and measure the process of everything that makes up our universe getting old and deteriorating and eventually dying. Everything in our universe is deteriorating. It's dying. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. This isn't a philosophical or a religious belief, it's just a scientific fact. Matter of fact, that scientific fact is the underlying principle for all of our present day physics. And the Bible is is explicit on this matter as well. Yet, beyond the physical nature of things, there is also some mysterious thing that exists within our universe that's not even part of that four dimensions. Something that can't be explained, it can't be measured by those four dimensions, it can't be detected by any way man has devised or ever will be able to. And that mysterious thing is what we call spirit. How do I know spirit exists? Because in addition to the fact that the Bible says it does, I've experienced it in my own life. My own life experiences with God have proven it to me. The Spirit exists in us. It actually sustains our very lives because when it leaves us, our existence ends. How did the Spirit get into us? God put it there. Where does it reside within us? Well, the Bible says it's in our hearts, but in fact it's not in a specific place. In this context, the term heart needs to just be taken as a figure of speech. And astoundingly, if we trust God, He'll even put His own Spirit, a Holy Spirit, within us. The Holy Spirit's another kind, yet, of spiritual substance that somehow different than the kind of spirit that I call the life spirit that is the basic life force in all living beings, human or animal. Both of these kinds of spirit, the kind that animates all uh, organic animal life and the holy kind that permits communion between humans and God are in no way connected to this four-dimensional universe of ours. Yet, there they are. A good way to think of spirit is as a fifth dimension that's present in our universe, but it's not from our universe. Now, part of the reason that we have so much trouble with the concept of spirit is because it's not detectable, it's not knowable by our rational senses. God made man and animals out of the physical stuff of the universe. In man's case, it's dirt. But in addition, he brought something from outside the confines of our universe through the universe and put it into his living creatures. That thing's called life. Or better, the spirit of life. Even more, the Lord put another aspect of Himself into humans, but not animals, and that's the ability to know Him and to commune with Him. This is what the Bible calls the human spirit. Now when God made our universe, our universe's natural state, at least it was this way on planet Earth, was darkness. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters and God said, let there be light. There was light. Everything was dark and then from somewhere outside of our universe God brought light into this darkness. Now, this light of Genesis 1.3 is not light as in the sense of what comes from a, from a light bulb or a lamp although he eventually brought that as well by means of light emitting objects up in the sky but rather it was light in the sense of spiritual enlightenment in Hebrew, or which means truth, goodness a spirit of truth and goodness. Now, this is really critical for our understanding because the Hebrew word used for the darkness of the original state of the universe was choshech, which means obscurity, falsehood, blindness. Choshek is a spirit of wickedness, a lack of spiritual enlightenment. It does not mean darkness like night time. So what God created first was a spirit of truth and good that in Hebrew is called Or. Okay, now let's add another piece to the puzzle. Where did good and evil come from? Because of the strict way our universe operates, generally reflected in the laws of physics, everything in it must and does have an opposite. Tuck that one away. In electromagnetics, if there's a positive charge, then a negative charge must also exist because they're in relation to one another. Let me put it another way. In our universe, if there is a far, there is necessarily a near. If there is an up, there must be a down. If there's a short, There is a tall. If there's a front, there's a back. If a coin has a head, it must have a tail. By that I mean it has to have two sides. Because it's impossible in our universe for anything to exist that does not have an opposite. If there is a future, there must be a past. And a present. Because that's the way that time, the fourth dimension, operates and to operate in the current way that our universe operates if there is life there must also be death no matter what phenomenon you can think of there is an opposing phenomenon in the makeup of the four dimensional universe in which we live why is that? does it have to be that way? yeah, because that's how God designed it could God have done it differently? Apparently so. Right? As the existence of other dimensions is evidence that he had other choices. Now, Because of this principle of opposites, which is a God-ordained law for our universe, in order for good to exist in some form in our universe, then its opposite, evil, must also necessarily exist. Let me state that again. Because our universe requires an opposite Then, along with good, there's evil. You can't have one without the other. They are connected. It's just the way our universe works. However, outside of our universe, say like in heaven or in some other dimension, that's not necessarily true. And in the new universe that God will create the new heavens and the new earth that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation at the end of the period that is called the millennial kingdom we're told that there will be only good and no evil because the laws that govern our current universe as we know them are going to be abolished. We're told that the the, the earth and all the heavens, meaning all the objects out there, are going to be melted back to their elements and started all over again. Things operating in those other six or seven dimensions that are outside of our four dimensions aren't subject necessarily to the rules of opposites. And apparently in heaven, no opposites required. We do bump into the account of Satan and those fallen angels no doubt. Now, for a really big and gut wrenching question who or what causes evil to exist? Or even better, who or what is the creator of evil? Well, let's look to Isaiah 45 7. Isaiah 45 7 says, The one forming the light and creating the darkness causing well-being and creating calamity I am the Lord who does all of these that sounds okay to most of us doesn't really bother us too much that the Lord who created light and darkness also causes well-being and creates calamities as much as we might wish that scripture didn't say God causes calamities something that might affect us personally we accept that notion fairly readily Oh, if it were just that simple and straightforward. The verse we just read from, I read from the New American Standard Bible. It employs a translation method that's called dynamic translation. Look now at that same verse in a more literal, direct, word-for-word translation in the Jewish Publication Society Bible. Isaiah 45.7 I formed the light and create darkness I make peace and create evil I am the Lord that doeth all of these things now this one kind of does hurt our sensibilities a little bit it says bluntly that the Lord creates evil is that possible? we'll look even at the, complete, at the uh, King James Version I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. There are four Hebrew words in this verse. Or, Choshech, Shalom, and Ra. Becky, would you check the temperature gauges? It seems to be getting hot in here. So by mixing in the Hebrew with the English words the verse reads I form the Or and create Choshek I make Shalom and create raw." Now we've studied the words Or and Choshek and so we know that they are words denoting two opposite categories of spiritual nature good and evil. Shalom is very interesting. It's a very interesting Hebrew word we could take up an entire session talking about. But for today, just know that its very nature is describing a sense of well-being, peace, good, goodliness, godliness, prosperity, and grace that comes from the hand of God. It's divine. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual source that produces Shalom. The Hebrew word ra has a similar but opposite sense. Ra means evil or bad. Remember the principle of opposites we've talked about. The principle that in our universe, everything that exists has an opposite. There are no exceptions to this. So as this verse and many others will tell us, if God forms light, then darkness is also created. If the Lord creates shalom, then evil is also created. God's behind it all, controls it all, uses it all for His divine purposes. Now it's only within our more modern Bibles that we even find the word evil replaced with words like disaster and calamity and woe. The Hebrew word ra means evil. Now calamity and disaster and woe can result from evil. And so those terms can be used in a dynamic way to explain a resulting action. But Ra directly refers refers to the spiritual sense of evil and that is because Ra is the opposite of Shalom. Now, Don't think this is some isolated verse concerning evil. This phrase directly showing the Lord causing evil to exist and to happen is scattered throughout the Bible. Amos 3:6 Shall the horn be blown in a city and the people not tremble? Shall evil befall a city and it's the Lord who hath done it? Lamentations 3:38 3:38 3, uh, Out of the mouth, the mouth of the most high proceedeth evil and good. So why does evil exist in our universe? Because God designed our universe as a universe of opposites. Thus when God created good, evil came into existence as good's natural opposite. Here comes a key concept in our lesson today. God did not create evil in the sense of God manufacturing it. God didn't turn to His right and create a mound of good and then turn to his left and create a big mound of evil. Evil is a result of his creating good and of placing that spirit of good into our four-dimensional universe, a universe where everything must have an opposite. One easier way to think about this is that when we envision that evil is everything that God does not command or instruct evil is the opposite of what is called good by God let me draw you an admittedly imperfect but I think reasonable analogy it's like when we go into a room and we turn on a light we flip a switch electricity flows to a filament in a light bulb it glows And presto, we've just added light to a room. But when we turn the switch the other direction to off and the room goes dark, did we add darkness to the room? Did the current in the light bulb reverse itself and suck the light out of the room? Or was the darkness manufactured in the same way that the light was manufactured? No, because darkness is simply the opposite of light. If light is not produced and present, then the condition remains darkness. Darkness is not something that is made, per se. It's the absence of light. In the same way, evil is the absence of good. So let's briefly sum this up before we head to a conclusion. We live in a universe that consists of four dimensions, length, width, height, and time. But we now know with near certainty that there are more dimensions than four in existence. However, apparently those other dimensions aren't part of the fabric of our universe. Therefore, there are other universes that employ these other dimensions as their attributes. Third, spirit can be thought of as a dimension that is not of our universe, a fifth dimension, but nevertheless it exists in living beings. We can't see it. We can't directly observe it because it's outside of our four dimensions. The Bible tells us that Spirit was brought from somewhere else and put into us by God Himself from another dimension. Fourth, the principle of opposites is a key foundational law of how our universe operates. That principle says that everything must have an opposite, no exceptions. And fifth, due to the principle of opposites, evil exists because good exists. And sixth, evil was not created by God in the sense of it being manufactured or produced. Evil is the result of God defining and creating good. All that is not defined by God as good is evil. When God created man, he gave us a will. From mankind's first breath, we had a will. There was never a time when man didn't have a will. If humans did not have a will, we would have simply been flesh and blood robots. Pre programmed to a certain behavior pattern, literal slaves to our Creator. So, what is the purpose and use for a will? What does a will do? A will enables moral choices. Our wills are part of that part of man which gives us the knowledge that there are choices to be made and that we have the ability to make those choices. How was the ability to have choice created in the first place? By God creating a universe in which the overriding rule is everything has an opposite. That's the very nature of choice, isn't it? Let's not trivialize, though, the purpose of the human will that God gave us by saying it's about preferences. Preferences are preference is an act of our intellect. A will is an act directed by our spirits. In other words, a will is not part of a man that chooses strawberries over bananas or chocolate over vanilla or blue over red our will is that part of us that makes moral choices choices of the conscience not of the ego more than anything else a will gives us the choice to love God or not to love God and this is expressed by our choosing the ways of God or other ways So by the mere fact that God gave humankind a will, meaning that God gave man the ability to make moral choices, then a will by default gave man the so-called yetzer hara, the evil inclination. If man had an inclination to do good, the yetzer hatov, to obey and to love God, then because we live in this God-prepared universe of opposites, man also had to have an inclination and an ability to do evil, which is to not obey God and to not love God. Why? Because if there were no moral choices, if if somehow there was nothing but good, available to us then having a will would be totally meaningless it would be a lot like a Cuban election you can vote for Castro or you can vote for Castro (laughs) you can't even choose not to vote what's the meaning of the concept of election if there's no choices it's the same for the human will without moral choice the will is made null and void. Does that make sense to you? Now this principle is evident in the facts surrounding the fall of man. That fateful moment when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. An interesting scenario unfolds. God creates Adam later Eve, complete with wills. Remember, God gave man, uh, made mankind in his image and God obviously has a will. From all the information given to us, God puts nothing off limits to the first couple. Everything's available to them. Translation. There is no way to go against God. Nothing they can do is immoral. They can't break the rules because there's no rules to break. They can't make a bad choice. There's no choices. Again, we're not talking about preferences. But there was one thing about which they could make a moral choice. One rule that they could break and it revolved around the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The rule was, don't eat from it. In other words, without the existence of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the divine restriction against eating of its fruit there were no moral choices for Adam and Eve to make simply didn't exist without the existence of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and without God telling them they could not partake of it there wasn't even, even any reason for Adam and Eve to have wills for what possible purpose? Question, did Adam and Eve have any concept of good and evil before the fall? It would appear not. Did they have any concept of morality? would appear not. Things just were as they were. They weren't required to consider obedience versus disobedience. There was no rules. However, when God set the tree of knowledge of good and evil before them and said, don't eat from it, ah, now they had an opportunity to exercise their wills. So far as we know, it was the first opportunity. Now, they could make a moral judgment. Even more, by choosing to disobey God, they indeed did gain a knowledge and understanding of good and evil that they never before encountered. Is this making sense to you? I think it's fair to say that they had never even considered the possibility of disobeying God or did they have any idea that by doing so, evil would result? Why? Because they had no knowledge of the difference between good and evil. The concept was non-existent to them. But by means of Satan's deception and temptation and at the decision of exercise of their own wills, they chose to go against God's one moral rule don't eat of that tree thus the first transgression on earth against God occurred and from this Adam and Eve learned there was such a thing as evil we call a transgression transgression against God a sin sin now entered the world and what is sin but an act of evil Without choice, there can be no sin. There must be choice. This has a direct correlation to a much later time in Scripture when Moses is given the Torah on Mount Sinai. Listen to what Paul says, and as you you hear this, Think about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Paul says in Romans 4.15 For the law brings about wrath but where there is no law there's no violation. That's pretty logical, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Remember that in the New Testament the word law usually means the Torah. When there is no Torah no instruction from God, there cannot be violations against God. Now please catch this. The Torah law was to Israel what the tree of knowledge of good and evil was for Adam and Eve. The Torah is for Israel what the tree of knowledge of good and evil was for Adam and Eve. The primary difference is that Adam and Eve had a one-regulation Torah. Don't eat from that tree. That's it. The Torah law given to Israel on Mount Sinai had many more regulations, but with exactly the same effect by means of those rules and commands Israel gained a much more intimate knowledge of good and evil there will be torah until good and evil don't exist anymore listen now to paul as he further explains this phenomenon about moral choice in the next chapter of romans romans 5:13 for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What imputed mean? Imputed means that it's not given to you. It can't, it can't exist. Imputed means something to whereby there necess- isn't necessarily a law, it's just considered to be so if you have taxes uh, if you've ever had to pay this they have what they call imputed interest all right in other words it it implies that while while that maybe you have an income source all right and but the IRS says well we assume that even though you're not reporting it and and we don't find any evidence of it there has to be interest on that source there must be so we impute that the interest in today's rate should be 6%. So we charge you what's called imputed interest. Okay? It doesn't actually exist, but we, for purposes of our regulations, declare that it does. You with me? In other words, Paul says certainly sin and evil existed before the law, before the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But until God announced His regulations for Israel, there weren't any regulations for them to break. In a manner of speaking, for a time, Israel lived as Adam and Eve did. They were created with wills, so now they needed choices set out before them. They were redeemed from Egypt now they needed all these choices set out before them. Once God set down His rules, His law, His Torah, this now gave them a concrete set of moral choices that governed all phases of life, from relationships between men to relationships between men and God. They could choose whether to love Him by means of obedience to his instructions, his Torah, or they could choose not to, by means of disobeying. All of which causes Paul to conclude this in Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise has been made this verse is often stated to mean why the law then it was added to create transgressions and in a sense that so if a man have a will has a will he must have moral choices the law is what provides those choices And if we have choices due to our evil inclinations and fallen natures, there will be transgressions. There's no way out. Let's go full full circle now. Back to Genesis 6.13 that started our lesson. Let's talk about Noah and apply what we've learned. God didn't blame Satan... Ruining the earth with evil. He blamed men and all living creatures. Were these men that he blamed 100% evil? No. No more than Noah and his sons, because they were saved, 100% good. This is a good way to see our condition. It's an utter misreading of the Bible text to say that men are 100% evil. We do have good in us. Good in the sense of the Yetzer HaTov, the good inclination. But without the Holy Spirit in us to direct the use of that good, then even our motives will be impure and wrong. Our application will be misdirected. And whatever good we might possess can easily be turned to evil. How does that happen? By using our good intentions in a manner that's not God's will. And that which is not God's will is called what? Evil. Let's talk about Satan for a couple minutes. Discover what his role in all of this is. I've heard too many well-meaning pastors and Christians, Christian leaders say something to the effect of why would we glorify Satan by talking about him? Well, that's like a general saying, I don't want to glorify my enemy by discussing his tactics and strategies. Don't even want to talk about it. Noble. Very foolish. first, There really isn't as much explained in the Bible about Satan as some might have you believe. A lot of what we think we know about Satan is Christian and Jewish legend and tradition and denominational doctrine. In a nutshell, here's a summary of what we do know about Satan directly from Scripture. First, he began as a heavenly being... Now the common term is that Satan is a fallen angel. My only quibble with that is that not all heavenly beings are angels. Angel is a very specific Hebrew word, malach. And the Bible speaks of several kinds of heavenly beings other than angels. Things like seraphim, cherubim. We don't know very much about any of these creatures, but they were created and placed into a hierarchy of power Power and authority and access to God and it appears that just below God were the cherubim who were not malakim they were not angels listen to Ezekiel 28.12 which is well understood by Hebrew and Christian scholars alike as one of the more direct referrals to Satan in the Bible Ezekiel 28.12 Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald... And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Satan was not an angel, but he was probably one of the cherubim. He was the anointed cherub, a very high and trusted position. He was so high that he was allowed the closest access to God Himself. He was beautiful, he was powerful, he was of the highest rank and order. Second, Satan fought against God. He was cast down to earth along with some angels over whom he was in charge. and Apparently they took his side against God. Revelation 12.7 And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they weren't strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Here we see Satan and the angels that took sides with him in open rebellion against God, kicked out of heaven, sent down to planet earth. That fabulous cherub and his angel followers weren't strong enough to overcome Michael and the angels under him so they lost the war. They were exiled to reside on earth. So, not only is Satan not as strong as God, he's not even as strong as another cherub named Michael. So, let's not overestimate Satan's power either. Third, as we see in Revelation 9, Satan was a deceiver. Yet he was and is under God's control. God does have a purpose for Satan, Satan wasn't an accident. Satan is to deceive and tempt people to do evil which means that God has a purpose for evil. What's that purpose? We just went over it. To give us a moral choice. Without the actual and real opportunity for us to choose evil we have no moral choices. Fourth, Satan is an unholy spirit. Now consider this from all that I've told you. In our universe, everything has to have an opposite. If there's a Holy Spirit present in our universe, there has to be an unholy spirit present in our universe. Satan is that unholy spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit is the embodiment of the purest good and only good and is in fact God, Satan is the embodiment of purest evil and only evil and is in fact the anti-God. Just as God is real, Satan is real. It's not an idea. Let us also remember... But although we've come to use Satan as a name for that prince of all evil, in fact, Satan is a title. Satan or Shatan is the Hebrew word for adversary. Now further, we need to get out of the habit getting near the end we need to get out of the habit of blaming Satan for every evil thought that we have for every wrong that we do. Satan does not control our thoughts. We have wills. We have the means to obtain a thorough understanding of what is good. It's by means of our will and through disregarding or willfully refusing to learn what God says is good and evil. That we often choose evil, but then declare it good. This is just as prevalent today in the church as it is in secular society. As an aside... I think that at least one purpose for Satan being locked away during the entire time of the coming thousand year reign of Christ is to teach us by means of Bible prophecy and to demonstrate to those who will be living during that thousand year period That as long as the four-dimensional universe exists and for as long as we live in this four-dimensional universe, we will have an inclination within us to choose evil as well as good. And it's not Satan who causes that evil inclination. Think about it. Christ comes the second time as a warrior king. He defeats all who fight against God and Satan is then barred from human contact. He is locked away into the abyss. He can't deceive. He can't tempt. He can't interact with man in any way. Every last human being on this planet will be a believer and Christ will be sitting visibly on the throne. The world is at peace. Nothing but good is happening. But at the end of that thousand years, after many generations of men, that evil inclination that remains in humanity begins to stir again. Satan is released from where he's been imprisoned and is now given permission to entice men to follow him to use that evil inclination that's still in us. Man still has the remnants of that evil inclination within him even during the thousand year reign. Satan offers them the moral choice. A lot will take it. Here is proof that while Satan is certainly the spirit of evil, he—it it is not all his doing that man has evil in him and that man makes evil choices. Satan is a deceiver. He is a tempter. But we're not robots. We don't have to oblige him. Man chooses. Now I know this upsets this upset some Christian denominational doctrines concerning evil, and we've also gone into a lot more depth on the topic of evil than you probably expected to when you showed up today. So I think that's enough for today and next week we'll finish up Noah and Genesis six and get back into our study. Okay?